Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to the two authors of The Authority Trap, Strategic Choices of International Non-Governmental Organizations. The book is published by Cornell, Cornell University Press this year. I have Sarah Stroop and Wendy Wong on the phone. Sarah, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Yeah. And Wendy, you're there as well. Yes, I am. Thanks. Good. Good. Thank you both. Uh, What I'd like to do is give you each the chance uh, to introduce yourself, and then we'll talk about this really interesting book. Sarah, would you like to go first? Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I'm an associate professor of political science at Middlebury College, and Wendy and I have been working on this book together um, since about 2012 or 2013. Before that, um, I authored uh, Borders Among Activists, which was also published by Cornell, and um, thus have been thinking about international NGOs for what feels like a really long time. Great. And, And Wendy, how about yourself? I'm also an associate professor of political science at the University of Toronto. And like Sarah said, we've been working on this project together for a number of years and before that had been collaborating as well. Uh, My first book was also on Cornell University Press and it was called Internal Affairs. And I was really interested in how the internal organizational structure of INGOs affects their global influence. Yeah, and and this is the the focus of the book. Um, uh, Sarah, maybe we can just start with you. And and the focus here is on international non-governmental organizations, or INGOs. Would you maybe offer us a definition of what a INGO is exactly? I'm happy to. It is one of the perennial challenges of studying in this field. So non-governmental organizations are defined by what they are not. They are uh, not public institutions. Um, And international non-governmental organizations, according to the standard definition by the UIA, uh, operate in three or more countries. There's a lot of fuzziness around the boundaries of what are the INGOs that we care about in global politics. For example, we might not study the International Football Association as much as we study the International Chamber of Commerce or Amnesty International. But in general, non-governmental organizations all share a commitment to some public benefit activity, something beyond their own membership, um, and they do not uh, make profits. Um, they spend their money on their social mission. Now, now, Wendy, to, to um, deepen that a little bit and relate it to the book, uh, you distinguish between leading INGOs and other INGOs. Uh, what is the difference there? And, and maybe you can um, uh, mention a couple of the uh, typical examples that fall into each of these two categories. Sure. Yeah. Um, So this gets at the heart of why Sarah and I decided to write the book that we did. So in the past couple of decades, there's been a lot of interest from both the scholarly and I would say the policymaking community on the role of INGOs in global politics in terms of thinking about what they're doing, the kinds of influence they have over different outcomes that, that we care about. 
And so we were trying to figure out a way to study these actors, these INGOs, uh, systematically across cases and across sector. So a lot of times when people are interested in studying INGOs, they're interested in environmental INGOs or human rights INGOs. And we wanted to study them as a group of types of actors engaged in global politics. So we were really trying to define what their influence might be. And we sort of hit on this idea that part of their influence has to do with the fact that different audiences accept their authority. So we were trying to distinguish between those INGOs that have authority and those that don't. And it turns out, um, I don't want to skip too far ahead, but some INGOs have a lot of authority um, before multiple audiences. So we call those the leading INGOs. And uh, many, many more INGOs, in fact, most, the great majority of INGOs in the world don't have authority. And so we call those other INGOs. Um, That's sort of a a more of a catch-all category. But leading INGOs are some of the ones that Sarah's already mentioned. Um, They're the ones that we tend to think of offhand. So like the World Wildlife Fund, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, um, Médecins Sans Frontières, or, or Doctors Without Borders, for example. Now, with this as the as the focus, um, uh, Sarah, you you have a sort of a central paradox for these leading INGOs. Um, in some ways, what you call the the trap in your title. Uh, why do these leading groups not act more boldly? Um, you you seem to sort of have this this argument that uh, they are leading, but they don't exactly lead in every case. Um, they seem to prefer more incremental change over radical change. Um, would you unpack that that um, that paradox, if if that's the right way to frame it, or or maybe there's another way to think about the central tension in the book? Yeah, there is that tension, and and it is a paradox. Um, so yes, as Wendy described, one of the things that we do in the book is we try to measure uh, INGO authority. Um, but what you're discussing is the causal claim that we try to unpack, which is how the different levels of authority that international NGOs have affects the strategies that they choose when they're trying to interact with various audiences. Uh, The audience uh, might be states, it might be corporations, or it might be some of their peer groups. What we argue in the book is that it is really hard for an international NGO to become an authority. Um, Unfortunately, or if you're a sympathizer of international NGOs, unfortunately, most INGOs are ignored in global politics. So it's a rare event to become one of these leading INGOs. Because it's so hard to secure this authoritative status, those INGOs that are leading ones have to work very hard to maintain that status. That is, they have to make sure that they maintain deference from the audience that they're interacting with. This leads them to pull their punches a little bit. Um, We refer to the sorts of policy pursuits of leading INGOs as vanilla victories. They tend to choose uh, policy asks and political strategies that uh, might move the ball a little bit, but are not so radical as to alienate their audiences. Um, People might come to different conclusions about whether this is a good or a bad thing. On one hand, they are victories. These are changes from the status quo. On the other hand, they seem to be incrementalists, and many of their peers think that they are uh, not radical or not substantial enough. 
Yeah, it's such an interesting argument. And and Wendy, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about about how you did this book. Um, what did you do? You, you've uh, worked on the book for a, a number of years. Uh, what's the method that you used? How did you collect your data? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, I was just going to say, other than talking endlessly about what we were observing and how to explain it. So, um, so one of the first steps we had to do, as Sarah alluded to, was collect data on international NGOs. And what do they look like? And how do we think about their authority? How can we measure that? It's such a uh, you know, a, an ambiguous and, and social concept, right? So in a way, we had to figure out the right measures. And so first, we figured out the, the relevant audiences for INGOs, and we settled on the three that Sarah's mentioned, so states, uh, peer INGOs, and corporations. And we also thought we can't do an analysis of INGOs without thinking about this idea of the global public. So then we set out to, to find the data out there or or ways that we could, you know, even think about these ideas systematically um, in terms of how uh, INGOs are securing authority before, before all these different types of audiences. So we ended up relying on a number of different types of sources. So some of the data we collected originally, so data on uh, newspaper accounts, for example, that was uh, as part of the idea of the global public. We also collected Google Trends data. So what kinds of things are, are people searching for? Which INGOs occur to people to actually type into their computer uh, to, to search on Google? Um, we also consulted some available data uh, from from some of our, our colleagues with regard to the way that INGOs network with each other and, and the way that they talk about each other in terms of who is a good INGO versus others that are not. Uh, we look at the way that legislatures talk about INGOs and which INGOs are getting cited or called before the U.S. Congress as expert witnesses. We looked at some corporate data, although that uh, the relationships between INGOs and corporations is, is notoriously difficult to study. So that that's a little bit more limited, but we talk about uh, how how that how people have have studied those relationships systematically in the book so we had first we had to do this large data gathering exercise to show that authority is actually quite rare um, among INGOs, and it's even rarer for them to have authority before multiple audiences. So securing authority before one audience is pretty tough. Securing authority before two or more audiences, as you can imagine, is even harder. From there... Oh, sorry. No, no, please continue. Oh, uh, from there, we then looked at uh, some comparative case studies in, in the latter part of the book, focusing specifically on three audiences, uh, states, other INGOs, and corporations, to try to unpack some of the dynamics that we think uh, we think are shaped by the either leading INGO status or other INGO status. So thinking about the strategies that INGOs use in their interactions with, with different audiences. Yeah, and Sarah, I wanted to uh, have you talk a little bit about those, a couple of the case studies. Um, you focus on the arms trade and global finance. Uh, what do we learn about the um, strategies and, and uh, activities of these leading INGOs uh, in these two cases, especially when they work in coalition with other organizations? Yeah. Um, 
one of our challenges was choosing cases where we were likely to see many of these leading INGOs get involved. Um, much of the wonderful research that's been done so far on INGOs has been done in specific sectors, like Wendy mentioned earlier. So we were looking for cases where you could potentially have um, lots of different actors in because it wasn't clear whether it was a security issue or a human rights issue or an environmental issue. So um, we chose two campaigns, um, the campaign for the arms trade treaty and the campaign for the financial transactions tax. Um, And we additionally chose these campaigns because the composition, the membership of the campaign changes over time. And in each campaign, they're started by other INGOs, but then a leading INGO or two comes in. And so we can actually see the effects on the campaign from the entrance of one of these high-status INGOs. In both cases, the entrance of these high-status NGOs led them to get more prominence than they had before, so that's the victory part, but it also changed the policy ask of each of the campaigns. Um, So I'll I'll illustrate this in talking about the financial transactions tax campaign. Um, In in the news, this is often referred to as the Robin Hood tax. Here in the United States, Bernie Sanders' campaign and National Nurses United has been part of this. And like Robin Hood, the goal of the tax is to steal from rich bankers um, just a little tax on the side of their currency or financial transactions and spend that money on global public goods. Interestingly, this policy idea started out as a really radical critique of neoliberal capitalism. It was first suggested by Nobel Prize winning economist James Tobin, who famously said that we could, quote, throw sand in the wheels of commerce, that we could slow down speculative currency movements that were disrupting economies around the world. As this campaign emerges over time, it moves further and further away from this critique of capitalism and more towards a fairly unobjectionable idea that we could raise a little money on the side to deal with climate change mitigation or health care. Um, part of that move uh, was driven by the entrance of Oxfam, a leading INGO in the campaign. Oxfam is incredibly effective at at packaging policy asks and raising public attention. But uh, they also suggested a level of the tax that was much lower. If you ask for a higher tax, it is more likely to actually get in the way of uh, financial transactions. If it's a very small marginal tax, it won't slow down the number of transactions, but it will raise a little bit of revenue. So um, we argue that this is a a vanilla victory. This is, um, yes, more attention to the FTT issue than had existed before when it's being considered by a small group of European states today, but um, it is a less radical idea than other organizations had been suggesting in the mid-1990s. Yeah, and, and it, this, this finding it really runs, I think, counter to what we would expect or hope uh, from these uh, leading INGOs. So, uh, Wendy, if, if they're not at nearly as bold and successful um, in their interactions with states, it, it must be the case when they interact with corporations, uh, things look differently. You have a, a really interesting chapter on those interactions between the INGOs and corporations, these corporate campaigns. Um, is the story similar or, or very different to the one that Sarah just told? 
So when we talk about corporations and INGOs, a lot of times they're seen as very different, right? They're coming from completely different market orientations, and they are, in fact, often characterized as opposites. So our finding in the book is that, in fact, when INGOs, and especially leading INGOs, interact with corporations, they sort of follow the same kind of moderating strategies that they do with states as well um, for, for a number of reasons. But you know, INGOs, uh, because they see corporations as a relevant audience to their work, and a lot of times what they're doing is critiquing or co- uh, collaborating with, with corporations, they, leading INGOs can't make too many waves um, if they want to continue keeping the attention and in fact the deference the the sort of looking looking to ingos for for guidance in in the behavior of corporations or at least getting corporations to even respond to ingo claims about uh what they should uh, corporations should or should not be doing so what we find is that that there is a lot of variation um, among ingos when they interact with corporations but leading ingos tend to uh, be moderate. They tend to go for vanilla victories, um, where other INGOs might not be so constrained with, with their behavior. Um, and we, we illustrate this with a number of case studies because we can look at um, several strategies um, with regard to how INGOs interact with corporations. So uh, with the leading INGOs, um, we, we look at the case of Walmart and the sustainability consortium that they've set up that has membership from a lot of other corporations, some members of civil society and some members of academia. Um, and, and we find that um, although the TSC, as it's called, has advanced a number of um, important uh, standards for thinking about sustainable uh, corporate behavior, it is a non-binding solution. And so it is probably more of a moderate uh, solution than many uh, INGOs might otherwise uh, want from corporations in terms of shaping behavior. We also look at the UN Global Compact, which is um, an agreement um, at the, started by the UN, by Kofi Annan, that asks corporations to, be, uh, to, to change their practices for, for sustainability, not just environmentally, but also socially and, and thinking about uh, human rights and, and humanitarian concerns. And there again, we find that um, <clears throat> you know, le- uh, leading INGOs are, are involved, but um, the UN, that entire project in and of itself is often criticized for uh, for bluewashing, for not being uh, as as bold as it could be. And finally, we look at the uh, Forestry Sustainability Council um, that on, with regard to sustainable forestry products to to sort of show that sometimes INGOs can actually compete with corporate. Uh, corporate efforts. And so the the FSC actually competes with corporate-sponsored solutions to creating uh, sustainable forestry products. And that's an interesting dynamic, but it's not one that many leading INGOs have, have, uh, have um, bought, on, bought into. Now, now, just in the interest of sort of wrapping up our conversation, I wonder if each one of you could talk a little bit about the response to the, the book so far, um, I don't know how widely disseminated the book is yet, but I imagine some of the people that you have 
interviewed and talked to and interacted with over the last number of years have, have read some, th- some portion of this and gather what your findings are. Um, Sarah, have you, have you gotten feedback from um, people who are, are deeply uh, immersed in the world of, of INGOs and whether uh, they, they agree with the findings of the book or, or take issue with them? What's, what's been the response so far? Yeah, um, we, we've shopped this idea in advance of publication to some of our trusted friends in the NGO sector. And so we have, I think, a, a little bit of a sense of how this lands. And um, I might say that they, I've, I've heard at least three different reactions from practitioners. Um, one, from some friends who work for smaller NGOs, um, have questioned whether NGOs truly do seek authority. Um, and I think Wendy and I would concede that there is a substantial group of NGOs that are not looking to get more attention for more audiences, um, but they're just looking to work on one or two tasks in one or two countries and kind of do those well for an established donor base. Um, But I would say that we think that that category of um, not authority-seeking NGOs is fairly small, simply because uh, the world that NGOs exist in is a a very uncertain one. You might lose your funding base. Um, The country that you work in may become more hostile to what you're doing. And so securing more attention, um, getting bigger audiences may be necessary for organizational survival. Um, The second reaction that we've heard from a lot of people who work in smaller NGOs um, is, I think, that this rings true somewhat, that they um, are frustrated by how some of their partners uh, in these powerful organizations have pulled back a little bit on the the asks of any policy proposal. Um, I don't want to overstate how um, substantiated our findings are, because I'm sure that there, there are lots of cases where that's not true. Um, but we've, we've heard a number of stories saying that we're, we're definitely on to things. The last interesting thing that I'll say uh, that we, we've heard from practitioners is that um, from the leading INGOs, this is a bit of a challenge to what they do, um, but perhaps a healthy one. That, um, and I think for me, uh, if there's, if there's a, a practical outcome of our book project, it is to encourage these incredibly prominent and well-respected organizations to push themselves a little bit more than they might otherwise. Um, If this book can help some staffers at some leading INGOs fight some internal battles um, to be a little bit more ambitious, then I'll feel pretty good about that. And Wendy, how how about yourself? This is are you getting the same feedback? I know you're probably getting this uh, uh, together, but um, is is this the response that that you expected uh, from uh, the the non academic audience that uh, I'm sure is interested in the book? Yeah, I think you know Sarah articulated some of the major uh, concerns and responses we've gotten. I would just add, I think that two other. Um, Responses we've gotten are, are one, um, you know, what is our perspective in this book, right? Are we, you know, it sort of goes both ways. I think it depends on when we're talking and to whom we're talking and, and what stage, you know, this project has been at. But um, sometimes we get characterized as, as cynical, right? Because we think about this as a trap. And so, you know, leading INGOs do this and other INGOs do that and they can't help or they, it's very difficult for them to resist these pressures. And I don't, I, I see that as if, if you are in an NGO, that might, it might 
seem negative, but you know, our, this is an analysis of, of larger trends and general strategies that INGOs adopt. And I think part of what Sarah was, was touching on is exactly, you know, this, this fact that we're coming at it not from within an INGO, but looking at INGOs writ large as a, as a category uh, or type of actor. And we're trying to understand their role, broadly speaking. And so the dynamics we find are not necessarily going to, you know, be 100% descriptive of how INGOs are experienced from within, um, or or how I, people who work within INGOs or work have worked in many INGOs necessarily see as their as their role. So um, that's one thing, and I think it wasn't a surprising response given that we are. We are finding these these uh, dynamics that affect INGO strategies and and limit their their behaviors and their choices. But but that's something that I think you know has been has been an interesting response nonetheless. And we do get lots of questions about whether there's a way out of the trap. Um, and you know again, this is a, a general dynamic we find, which we think is tells us a lot about the the behavior of INGOs. You know, when we look at them in general, but of course there are specific instances where it doesn't apply, and that's that's the sort of the beauty of social science. Yeah. Right? The the book again is the Authority Trap: Strategic Choices of International NGOs, published by Cornell University Press. The authors who you've been hearing from are Sarah Stroop and Wendy Wong. Sarah and Wendy, thank you both very much for your time today. Thank you very much, Heath. It's been great to be here. 